I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 58 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Josh Corman. Josh is a founder of the I Am the Cavalry Movement and CSO for PTC. Josh previously served as director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative for the Atlantic Council, CTO for Sonotype, director of security intelligence for Akamai, and in senior research analyst and strategy roles. He co-founded Rugged Software in the Eye of the Cavalry to encourage new security approaches in response to the world's increasing dependence on digital infrastructure. Josh's unique approach to security in the context of human factors, adversary motivations, and social impact has helped position him as one of the most trusted names in cybersecurity. He also serves as an adjunct faculty for Carnegie Mellon's Heinz College and on the Congressional Task Force for Healthcare Industry Cybersecurity. In this episode, we discuss his start in information security, being a superhero, the start of the I Am the Cavalry movement, cybersecurity and public safety, government versus hackers, IoT security, looking for non-traditional cybersecurity skills, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Well, Josh, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I am great. So, you know, you're one of the folks that I've followed for a number of years and the different initiatives that you've done, um, certainly been kind of a, a public figure in cybersecurity, but even kind of looking back in your history, you've been doing this probably before we were re- really overusing the word cyber. How did you kind of enter the field and, you know, what's, what's the last 20 some odd years look like? Oh boy. Um, I kind of grew up around computers. My dad was a digital equipment corporation guy and his roommate in college got arrested for freaking. <laughs> um, so I, I think I've just always been curious, you know, curiosity is the original crime, right? Um, but mostly I wanted to be a superhero growing up, like you know, all my heroes and morality came from Stan Lee and Marvel comics and whatnot. I just didn't have any superpowers. Uh, but as I got into software development and my first jobs and in, interns in college and whatnot, we partnered with this cybersecurity SIM company out of Canada. <laughs> Uh, and I was hooked. I'm like, oh, wait, there's an actual field here now. It's not just a hobby. Uh, so the first second I got, I pivoted into a, a role at a stealth-based startup to do, you know, essentially behavior-based malware stuff because I thought antivirus was always after the fact. And uh, it was right around 9-11, and all the money ran out, and DC-based firms dried up, and, you know, I kind of didn't pay attention. I just, you know, kept the my career going, we got acquired by internet security systems, which had, you know, the world famous X force and a ton of really talented people. And then we got acquired by IBM and I didn't really focus on the hacker scene as much as trying to be a good defender and think strategically about the stuff. Um, my background and degrees in philosophy and social contract theory. And I was kind of always worried, deeply worried about the relationship between technology and the human condition and I saw cybersecurity as a place to kind of take my 
philosophy roots and big picture, like what do you know now seven billion humans depend upon as we increasingly depend on, upon technology, but also um, you know the superhero kind of roots of being a protector. I think everybody does cybersecurity for different reasons. I've got these five P's of white hat motivations. It's uh, protectors that want to make the world safer, puzzlers that do it for challenge and curiosity, prestige that do it for fame and recognition or glory ego profit that do it for personal or financial advancement and protest or patriotism to do it for some for against some ideological uh, cause ideally within the bounds of the law and everyone's a little different but i was always a protector first and foremost just want to stop bad people from doing bad things to good people and uh i'm a protector second i kind of like gravitate towards those really hard problems that's probably the philosopher in me so i didn't really say let me go make a career in infosec or cybersecurity, but in fact, I, I kind of assumed that a philosophy guy would never be a material contributor. Um, but as the world kind of increasingly depends on connected technology, that means what we do to defend connected technology matters more and more to everybody. And now, as you can see, in 2018, it's a uh, it's geopolitical, right? It's really big deal. It's a public safety, human life, national security, international security kind of a thing. Did I answer your question? <laughs> I think you did. And it's, it's a good segue into, you know, I think one of the projects that I've known you best for, and that's at I Am The Cavalry, and, you know, had Nick Prococo on very early in the podcast. I was almost two years ago. But, you know, he talked about that of, you know, kind of how you guys kind of put your heads together and said, look, there's there's a lot of issues out there that we can tackle, but what are the most important ones? So I guess can you, you know, just so we can revisit it, maybe from your perspective, you know, what was the kind of impetus and the idea of going for, looking at all these other connected things and saying, Hey, there, there might be issues out here. Um, and there's a, there's a practical answer and a personal one. I sometimes can't separate the two when I start talking. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I, I, I researched prior to joining up with Nick on this. Um, I was one of the first to research the rise of hacktivism and anonymous. Um, it was a very risky and maybe stupid thing to do, but I, I saw it as culturally significant. While it wasn't technically impressive, it was a really big deal. And the philosopher in me said, uh-oh, this is kind of an emergent property of hyperconnectivity and social media. And to sound a little philosophy wonky for a second, um, but you'll see maybe some of my motivation, I said, wait a second, large groups of post-national youths are opting out of social contracts and defecting and taking direct action online. And while they're not talented, they're, they're highly motivated. And I kind of saw it as the first wave of the end of social contracts. You know, if you ever read or saw the movie Lord of the Flies, like humans can be animals. The only thing that keeps us from killing each other is, you know, a social contract. And it's not written down anywhere. But, you know, one of the things I started telling public policy people is that it got me over my imposter syndrome. My concern level got me over my imposter syndrome and started taking risks. And the things I wrote about with, with Jericho, attrition.org, for a year and a half in a series we called Building a Better Anonymous. Um, you know, government started paying attention. The UN started paying attention. Um, intelligence community started paying attention because we were, we were we were kind of spot on with no training on some stuff. And the global collective was kind of listening to us and changing their behavior a bit because of it. So I kind of got a taste for, wow, what we do matters. Um, but the, if you want to geek out for a second, the social contracts part, I said it's not written anywhere, but it's basically four things that keep us from being Lord of the Flies. It's some sort of nationalism or fealty to your country of origin. Number two, it's some sort of formal rule structure or you know, laws or representative government. Number three, it's some sort of 
Judeo-Christian religious belief that, you know, keeps some cohesion amongst pockets of folk. And number four, it's uh, family structure and local norms. And when I kind of squinted, I said, uh, anonymous is like 0 for 4. And I wasn't trying to romanticize those four, you know, struts that keep us from being, you know, amorphous goo. I was just saying the utility of them was some form of cohesion. And if they're going to go away in this global collision, I mean, of ideas, what, what should replace them? Um, and nothing seemed to be rising up. My concerns were that the second wave wouldn't be activism. It would be something like, you know, a cyber Al-Qaeda or something at the time. And we were not kidding. And, uh, and I think it's undeniable now you go a few years later when you saw you know, the cyber caliphate form out of ISIS, um, actually started by a member of Anonymous from Team Poison, Junaid Hussein. He went by Trick. And then separately, you saw uh, um, populism in Europe, in Brexit, in the U.S., whether it was Trump or Bernie. You know, just this uh, that was kind of the second wave of the effect of social media and whatnot. So how did I get to cavalry? It's uh, accidentally ending up in, like, U.N. meetings or talking to government decision makers in the U.S. Um, you know, I kind of naively believed for a long time that if you got the right concern to the right person, they'd just go fix it. And we just had to build up our credibility in the hacker community to, to be heard. Well, I started getting meetings in those corridors of power. And at one point, um, I was able to, this is not classified, but not often talked about. I started talking about it more. I was able to bring five of the world's best hackers into Fort Meade for two days to meet with General Alexander and his staff on some really, really tough challenge questions like, just some group brainstorming. Um, this is before the NIST National Cybersecurity Framework Executive Order came out, so we didn't know that was coming, and it was before Snowden, because this would never have happened after the Snowden event. I wouldn't have gotten hackers to agree to go, and they wouldn't let us in anyhow, but um, but we did a two-day workshop that was kind of um, incredible. We asked really hard questions, and we got really into deep subject matter, and I got to see the only thing stronger than one of my favorite security researchers is one of them bouncing off the other four. <laughs> um, at the end of those two days, uh, General Alexander said, I, I can't do this recommendation. I can't do that one. There's no political will for this. The Constitution would have to change for that. And we kind of went down the list, and I I was just, like, uh, humbled and overwhelmed it. Like, wow. You know, we got everything across we wanted to, and they can't do anything about it. So at the bar that night, I said half of the equation to my friends. I said, guys, the cavalry isn't coming. Uh, nobody's going to fix this for us. And we just kind of let that uncomfortable silence sit there for a while. Um, but the personal part, which I'll try to keep very, very short, is what also happened those two days is my mother had had a stroke um, prior to that, what we thought was recoverable. And it turns out it was the the brain cancer that just took Senator McCain and had taken uh, uh, Kennedy before. Um, so I had gotten 18 voicemails saying that she was going to die when I got back to my car with my cell phone and whatnot. So it kind of took me off the playing field for a couple months and made me hyper-conscious of what mattered to me and what didn't, and also made me really conscious of time and not wasting it. She was, at the time, uh, 58, so pretty young. And uh, so what I did in the intervening months is just tried to make sure she was okay and hospice her and go through that grieving prep and grieving process. 
the, the last time we took her to her church um, was just before it was the weekend of the Sandy Hook shooting. It turned out really bad timing. So with a, as a dad of two little girls sitting there with my mom, who's you know starting to waste away, um, I just remember being pretty angry in that context about the preacher just saying over and over and over, like, why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil in the world? And, and all my mom wanted to do was say goodbye to her friends. So when I uh, got to um, go back there several months later when, for her funeral, I got a little triggered again by being in that same building. So during her eulogy, I didn't plan this, but uh, being triggered and wanting to stay positive and affirmative for my mom, I said, hey, you know, last time we were here, we were asking why is there evil in the world because of the Sandy Hook stuff and didn't sit well with me. And I think I just figured out why. And the thing that came out of my mouth resembled something like my mom was my seventh grade science teacher through some twist of fate. And I learned a lot of things from her, but among them were that uh, darkness is not a thing. It's an absence of light. And that cold is not a thing. It's an absence of heat. So maybe it's not just the presence of evil, but maybe the absence of good. And maybe if something's missing in the world, it's our job to put it there. And as I started saying this, I kind of, in the back of my mind, said, okay, well, what's the absence of Marie, which is my mom's name? And my family looked at me, waiting to hear the rest, and I said, well, we don't get to find out, because now it falls to us to do what she was doing. And as I said it, I kind of completed the thought in my brain from Fort Meade. And I said, okay, wait, if no one's going to do these things, then we got to try. It's got to be us. So I called up Nick, and after the healing process, as we built up to the summer, I said, we got to do something, because we can't just keep complaining and screaming in the darkness, and we can't just keep acting like solo actors and trying to think we can hear our way through it through rock star keynotes. And so let's try something new, because this isn't working. So uh, what I noticed in my grieving process was I was more raw and emotionally unfiltered. And I thought that was actually a weakness, but what we found is it led to much more authentic human connection and more high trust discussions um, and less pretense. So as I healed, I said, well, I'm, I'm going to keep that. And some folks said, you know, if we want to change the world, we got to change ourselves first. Let's try empathy for a change. <laughs> Let's not use our technical mastery, but our, you know, communication skills and ambassador translator skills. And we didn't know if anybody would listen, but we uh, put out the call. Um, in fact, initially DEFCON rejected the talk and we didn't want to name it. I'm the cavalry. It was just, that was the name of the talk. The cavalry isn't coming. And uh, B-Sides gave us a home and said, you can launch here. And then somewhere in the middle, Jeff Moss, Dark Tangent, said, you know what, guys, you need, this talk needs to happen. We'll give you the Sunday morning track one talk. And um, we didn't know if anyone would show or if anybody would hate it or they'd throw stuff at us. But we said we should try to get out of the echo chamber, be a helping hand instead of a pointing finger, start using the language that the people are trying to reach. And I kind of put out there that I was deeply concerned about over-dependence on undependable things and public safety, human life. Like as we put car stuff in our cars, our medical devices, our power plants, you know, this stuff, if, if our failure rate's a hundred percent on credit cards and banking and websites, why do we think it's going to be magically safer in cars and medical devices? Like this stuff, this is a terrible idea. And the goal wasn't to stop these technological advances. It was to make sure that the trust we placed upon it was worthy of that trust. And it wasn't. So I uh, had no idea if it would work, but we said we're going to think like hackers and we're going to fuzz the chain of influence and we're going to target this and we're going to do it as a team and we're going to do it with empathy and um, 
you know, didn't know if it would last three days or three months, but at least initially about 50 people answered the call. Um, we said, meet us at DerbyCon in a couple of weeks if you want to go to a constitutional Congress and figure out what our mission, vision, and goals are going to be. And ultimately, we narrowed our scope a little bit to just public safety and maybe hacker research and research laws. And uh, I, I don't know, I just, it's, it's incredible to me that it's been five years. We just turned five years old. And A, it's still alive. B, it's got a couple hundred members. C, we can count the policy impacts in the, in the dozens. And we're nowhere near done, but, you know, we want to see, will this experiment work? Will this blueprint work? Can we find a way past the imposter syndrome and, and tap into the strengths and skills of any and all comers, whether they're from computer science or communication or PR or librarian or a nurse or, you know, someone who works in an automotive manufacturer and cast a really wide net and see if we're stronger together. And the kind of unofficial motto became safer sooner together. The idea was we knew eventually after harm, people would figure this stuff out and make policy responses. We didn't want to wait for harm or we want to be more prepared when harm came. So the notion was uh, we'll be stronger together. And uh, we found some alternative ways for new people and people who didn't come up the hacker way to significantly contribute. And it's been, um, crazy ride but also a very fulfilling one yeah you touch on a, a few things it's kind of interesting to see uh, one aspect that i found interesting you know if we go back to you know i was a you know free kevin mitnick bumper sticker guy from the the 90s you know reading 2600 and there was always that division of it was us versus them it was the government versus the hackers it was always these two kind of opposing viewpoints and agendas and thought processes to where, you know, now going to ShmooCon and, and different things over the past couple of years to see a open dialogue between the hacker community and, and government public policy people about solving the real problems. Um, I guess what are, are is, can it get better? I mean, it seems to me it's heartwarming to see that we've even gotten this far. There's always the fear that there could be regression. But is it something that's going to continue to get better with the dialogues? And how do we keep that momentum going? How do we keep the two what were opposing sides working with each other to kind of solve these life or death problems? It's a tough one. I mean, I think it's one of those, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of things. Um, you know, we've kind of enjoyed, the Cavalry's kind of enjoyed like this virtuous cycle. And I, I think, you know, hackers are problem solvers. So the ones that really do want to solve problems, they, uh, they're they adaptable. So if they might not want to work with Gov, but if they see proof of progress, they, they change their mind. I think we had a ton of immediate haters instantly that it wouldn't work or they're just going to use this against you or they're going to create bad laws. But you know, there were previously people trying to like get rid of the Creative Fraud and Abuse Act or the DMCA, you know, with a head-on approach saying it's First Amendment protected free speech, you know, it's our right to hack and things like that. And policymakers kind of said, you guys sound like whiny brats. And there was really no constituency for that. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't funding, you know, campaigns. They weren't lobbying. They weren't writing academic papers. We were just, we just sounded like whiners. And I'm not saying we're smarter, but when we came in there talking about public safety, human life, it concerns for cars and medical devices and hospitals, you know, every one of their constituents drives a car or rides in one. Every one of them has to go to the hospital at some point. They care about those issues. There are communities of interest, there are committees of jurisdiction. And as we start talking about it, instead of your meeting being 10 minutes, you know, they're asking for more time at the end of an hour. 
And at the end, they say, well, what can we do to help? And you can pivot to, well, well, one thing is, you know, several laws like CFAA and DMCA have a chilling effect on this research that we're both uh, uniquely capable of doing and willing and able to do. And, you know, we just kind of change the nature of the conversation. And by not focusing on researcher rights, you know, you blink and the Food and Drug Administration is publicly and enthusiastically singing the praises of coordinated vulnerability disclosure and working with I am the Cavalry on, you know, raising technical literacy and helping with their pre-market and post-market guidance to be more clueful and raise the bar for cybersecurity and cyber hygiene for medical devices. And then Congress, their oversight committee in Congress says, wait a second, we like this. Why isn't the Department of Transportation doing this for cars? You guys got to look more like the FDA collaboration. And then DHS says, oh, wait, we, we, we're responsible for critical infrastructure. We should weigh in, too. And then Commerce Department runs a multi-stakeholder workshop on best practices for coordinated vulnerability disclosure. And somewhere in there, the hack the Pentagon pilot happens, and then there's a permanent program. And you kind of just watch this sea change. I hate that buzz phrase, but like you, you see the arc of history start to bend. And lawyers like Andrew Matwishan uh, and folks like Jay Radcliffe and Jen Ellis and others and Craig Smith from the car side and they start testifying on the DMCA three-year exemptions and lo and behold, we win an exemption for three years that it's no longer illegal under DMCA to research cars, medical devices, or consumer electronics. And the program goes so well and the FTC likes it that they start saying this should be a permanent exemption. And, and we're, the DOJ starts to give guidance on, you know, their attitude towards public vulnerability disclosures and, I'm not, we're not out of the woods, but I think proof and successes like that by using a different method, it's kind of hard to deny. And there's still some people that really hate this stuff and they think all government's bad, like fire bad. And fire's not good or bad. It depends on how it's used. We got to be better than Neanderthals here and just understand they're going to do public policy on cybersecurity. They're going to use the word cyber. The question is, is it informed by us? Is it improved by us? Is it maybe even introduced by us, or is it going to happen and we're going to have to react to something bad and take time to undo it or or work around it? And I think um, quite a few people after they saw some tangible results either softened their hate or even got on board. We had quite a few reformed people. Um, but, you know, I'd love to tell you that's all positive trajectory, but, you know, as we were talking before we started, some folks really hate this. They want to do it more for themselves or for their their prestige or for their business and, or they just so anti-government uh, at their core that we've kind of triggered an antibody response in some cases. And you're seeing people even contradict their own principles sometimes to try to like um, fight back some of these policy changes. And I don't think it necessarily means that we're always right. Um, I want, you know, technically informed and technically literate folks to, refine and steer and nudge and shape and sculpt these things to be better. Uh, but I think it's kind of up to the hacker community if we're going to be a menace or a, a help to that 7 billion people who increasingly depend upon what we do. You know, last summer, to tie this off, uh, not that this is the proof, but we, we had two sitting congressmen. You know, the trust that we built across different parts of government, and it's not just U.S., it's international governments too, but we got two sitting congressmen in a bipartisan way to come to DEFCON for two and a half days and did private meetings and walked all the villages and saw firsthand the hacking 
villages like the car stop and they had no idea how easy it was to do this stuff and no idea how far behind the policy stuff was. And they get on stage in public and had very clueful things to say. Like one of them used to work in the cybersecurity world. Uh, Will Hurd from Texas used to work post-CIA at uh, Fusion X with Matt DeVoe and company. And his Democratic colleague from Rhode Island, uh, Jim Langevin, he um, started the Cyber Caucus years ago and is pretty clueful and has a really strong staffer on uh, cybersecurity stuff. And I think it was a good confidence-building measure for DEF CON to see, wow, on our 25th birthday, we have two sitting members of Congress who are engaged and clueful. But on the other hand, you know, I think that really upset some of the, the core denizens. And this year, there was much more of an anti-government streak that popped up here or there. So I, I think we have to decide, if, you know, how we're going to evolve and adapt and what we're going to encourage and praise. But I'm hoping our, we'll grow up a bit because it's actually in our interest to do so. The things that we're most concerned about are improving when we build that high trust and high collaboration. We're not going to roll over and let government do silly or stupid government things, but we've got to get more practical and have a long view and build and leverage that trust. And it's going to have to be putting 7 billion people over ourselves. Well, yeah, the one thing that that's kind of going to be the takeaways I've been watching a lot of the, you know, everything from medical devices, IOT, UAVs, and, and any kind of anything that's going to have that connected autonomous is look, it's, there's a business driving a lot of this. Um, and for those in the hack, hacker community, kind of have a choice now. It's either you're going to be part of the solution or you're going to be left behind. It's not even, you know, you're, we have this opportunity now to have a seat at the table and to go in kicking and screaming is not going to be helpful to say, okay, well, look, there might be some different personalities we might not, you know, like or grew up with, but this, these are the real problems now. And we're going to have to change the way we behave and act to be more recognized. I think that's a big thing that we've seen in, in, the whole hacker community over the last three years I've been following is, oh, we're so different. We're so ostracized. But at a certain point, you, you do it to yourself. And we kind of have this opportunity now to to be problem solvers, to actually be those heroes and say, look, this this can be the, the kind of mentality, the skill sets that can be used for good, as opposed to just, be again, being either forgotten or, or demonized. Yeah, I mean, maybe this is a unhelpful detour, but it just really stuck out for me right before the prep for DEF CON. There was a hearing in the Senate um, about the Spectre meltdown disclosure debacles, right? And it was um, um, Chairman Thune and uh, Ranking Member Nelson from Florida. And one of the testimonies was uh, Art Mannion. And he's not the first hacker type to uh, testify. You know, Katie Mazurs has done it. I've done it. Jen has done it. But if you squint, you know, go back before the cavalry, I'm not saying it's causal. But if they talked to anybody about cybersecurity, it was the CEO of something like Symantec. You know, it wasn't somebody who is hands-on or technical or understood the culture. So now Congress is willing to put somebody on stage from the hacker community, you know, on the testimonies. But the more remarkable thing is, if you hear the opening remarks from these two, it wasn't. I'm sorry about the noise. If you hear the opening remarks. It wasn't, you know, off base or thinking the internet was a series of tubes. They're they're fairly well articulated, fairly nuanced, and they both of them implicitly accepted the benefits of public 
disclosure and coordinated vulnerability disclosure. And we're actually criticizing Intel and others for not properly leveraging the fruits of that research through CERT-CC and other mechanisms. And, you know, if you go back five years, you know, hacker equaled criminal. And now you've got two really powerful people in the Senate on one of the most important committees in the Senate taking it as a given that security research and the findings of hackers make us safer. I mean, you can't, un you can't understate how amazing that is. And again, we're not done, um, but the ability and the appetite to trust us to do bigger things and more broad sweeping things is, is increasing. So we can either find what's wrong. You know, I, I helped a lot with this IoT cybersecurity bill out of the Senate. It's a Warner and Gardner, bipartisan. There's a House companion. It was a response to Mirai. And I'm going to way oversimplify it, but everyone said how stupid it was. And I'm assuming they hadn't read it. So I, I said, okay, if you were going to do something legislatively that might improve the basic hygiene of IoT devices like $100 cameras that enabled Mirai, what would you do? And, you know, we just start talking about it like two guys at a bar. And I said, well, how did Mariah happen? And they're like, oh, well, you know, it was uh, it had a, it had a hard-coded password. It was like admin, admin, and the worm could easily guess it. It made it really potable. Like, okay, so maybe, we, maybe we'd say you shouldn't have hard-coded passwords. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, well, what else was the problem? Why, wouldn't, why didn't they just issue a patch? And I said, oh, it was also unpatchable. I'm like, so is it a good idea to be patchable? I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's a good idea to be patchable. I said, what else? And... I'm like, should you be able to ship, you know, with your own crypto or anything? I'm like, well, no, 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 you shouldn't roll your own crypto. You should use standards-based stuff or declare when you're not. I'm like, okay, what about a disclosure program? What if they work with good guys? Could we have told them about the vulnerability before the worm and the botnet? And I'm like, yeah, coordinated vulnerability disclosure is good. We should do that. And then I'm like, okay, what about, you know, known vulnerabilities? Sometimes some of these products ship with like 10-year-old known CVEs, and, you know, that's probably not a good idea. So maybe you should have to disclose any known vulnerabilities in your products. They're like, yeah, yeah, that would be a good bill. I'm like, guys, that's the bill. <laughs> yeah. That's for five. God, you know, God like, forbid they read it, you know, first, but yeah. <laughs> I don't, I'm, look, if you do read it, there's a lot of problems in the language because Congress people talk differently. It's just that what I try to condition us to do now is don't look for what's wrong with something, right? We're, we're, it's so easy to find what's wrong with something. Look for what's right with it. Encourage that. Engage and help them find the bad part or the, the savable parts. I mean, so if you look at anything, there's going to be stuff that's, instantly immediately valuable let's keep it encourage it you know endorse it number two there's gonna be stuff that's borderline that could go good or could go bad okay strengthen that and then there's stuff that needs to go away well just the act of not saying how great it was means it won't get as much attention during the horse trading and the negotiating and the rewriting and the editing with the chamber of commerce and the software trade associations and all the lobbyists like stuff doesn't survive it's an original draft it never does if you think like a hacker and you know how the system works and you map the chain of influence and you see how a bill becomes a law and you know what kind of things work and don't, what kind of language does and doesn't work, you know, ultimately I think where they sort of ended up with is if you sell IoT to the federal government, it should be patchable. It should have, um, you should avoid hard-coded passwords and they should have disclosure programs so they're more likely to find things from good guys versus bad guys. I think that's basically what the bill came down to. And you would have thought we were killing kittens to see some of our friends' reactions, like how horrible it is and they don't understand and, you know, you can't patch without hard-coded credentials and they don't understand technology. I'm like, well, right, what's their intent? 
of course, yeah, certificates and and signing and things could be considered a, a you know a credential, but like fix the language or even read the bill because it specifically excluded things like that you're complaining about. And I'm not trying to like harsh on our friends here. What I'm saying is it is incredibly difficult to build enough trust to inject some technically sound things. And some of the other proposals I've heard that would be a response to Mirai, both from the U.S. and from the U.N. and from EU, some of the ideas are really bad and they are really terrible for civil liberties and they're really terrible for net neutrality and they're really terrible for allowing oppressive regimes to, to find and kill dissidents, which happens in other countries. And it's okay to want to say no to everything, but at some point we got to outgrow that and we have to be able to, uh, to say what's right in this bill. What can I, uh, help them improve in this bill? What can I soften or discourage as a teammate um, or through, you know, balanced writing and public speaking? And and we might actually get something good. And, you know, I don't often quote Bruce Schneier, but he had a line that said, it's not a choice between um, public policy for cyber or no public policy for cyber. It's a choice between good policy for cyber or bad policy for cyber. And maybe people don't want to accept that, but the government doesn't care. I mean, hackers are politically irrelevant, uh, but we are influential if we use their language and if we meet them at their level, and if we focus on simple primitives like patchable devices and the like. And, you know, if we want to have a spirited argument over the, the, the pros or cons of trying to get devices to be patchable, we could do that. Um, but we should do that uh, in a constructive and, and traceable and public way. So I'm a little yeah, about that, just because that yeah. bill probably could have passed this Congress, but there was too much infighting and consternation also during election year that probably going to miss its legislative window and may need to wait another year or two. And how many other terrible low-cost, low-hygiene IoT devices will be built in that year or two delay? And how many other Mirai botnets may happen They may trigger one of those much worse oppressive ideas from another country to take effect? And, you know, how many new devices will come out at Christmas time or at the next computer electronics show further polluting, you know, the net. (laughs) And like we need to be pedantic or we can be practical. And I think we need to be bending things towards more sustainable and defensible IT. So, so, you know, part of that, too, you know, kind of comes down to the, the people issue, you know, it takes it's going to take a certain amount of people and there's always the debate of whether there's enough people whether there's not an, not enough and there's a huge gap but let's just assume that there is a certain amount of influx of people that we can certainly take in within the community to solve some of these problems what are the types of skill sets and talents that we should be looking for in individuals that maybe are not traditional IT skills or the things that we would see out of a traditional cybersecurity background because a lot of us quite frankly, that are here didn't come up that way anyway. Yeah, it's um, the, the, the simple answer is all, you know, star dot star, all of the above. Um, some of our most incredible contributors were from backgrounds you would not expect. Um, you know, uh, the, the most obvious ones is uh, Bo Woods, who didn't even see the launch that Nick and I did. He was doing a, a, a presentation opposite us in a different track. We met in the speaker lounge afterwards. He he's got a you know a psychology degree. Um, you got uh, um, Jen Ellis. Jen Ellis was a crisis management PR person at Rapid Seven, 
but her passion to defend H.D. Moore and the researchers at Rapid7 and got into public policy stuff and her professional communication skills and, you know, knowing how to talk to people, how to talk to people outside the echo chamber and non-jargon. Um, initially, she was just kind of giving us free media training because like most of the good doers in cybersecurity, she carries a lot of imposter syndrome and didn't think she could ever contribute. So she started off by giving free media training to people who otherwise never would have gotten it. And in the course of doing so, she's become one of the strongest and most um, high-impact ambassadors we have. You know, people that wouldn't necessarily, you know, share draft language of something with, you know, a hacker who they don't know how they're going to react, you know, probably will share it with someone like Jen. And she's actually testified on the Internet of Toys stuff um, and has been force of nature in our work on changing attitudes within the Department of Justice as far as enforcement of, of CFA and DMCA goes. Um, we have a librarian for the first time after last year's def, uh, besides Las Vegas who's good at organization. We have project managers who help us get scale. We have some people who made a, who understand database schemas that helped capture most of that public policy work that Bo and I did uh, in DC and elsewhere into a, a cyber policy database. Um, got web developers who aren't hackers but are helping to make sure that um, you know we keep some, some semblance of a free website up or content up. Uh, graphic designers, New Way uh, uh, and Doug Wilson kind of helped us make some really powerful visuals of 18 parts of the U.S. government over a two-year span that publicly endorsed coordinated vulnerability disclosure. You know, if we just kind of tweet out one at a time, it doesn't look like anything. But when you put them in a, in a data visualization or a graphic, it's super impressive to see the, the surge and the, the rolling thunder and the cumulative effect of which ones influence which other ones over time. And um, these aren't necessarily elite hacksaws. They're just really, really good at trying new stuff and leveraging the strengths of their teammates and uh, advocating for us or making introductions. Some of my favorite teammates work in medical device make companies or hospitals. Um, one of the crowning achievements, I think, of the cavalry is we got trusted enough that there was a congressional task force on healthcare cybersecurity for a year and a half, and they, they demand, you know, HHS demanded that there was a hacker voice, so they asked us to serve on that task force. It was really, really hard, but we had a chance to interface with large, medium, small, and rural hospitals all over the place, and I met a ton of either hackers or hacker conscientious people working in those hospitals and they were much more forthcoming with us than they would have been with, you know, some government person. So the quality and caliber of the findings and the, and the precision of the recommendations were much more on point and seen a much better chance of actually saving lives over time as a result of that. So now, you know, I, I would say the overwhelming majority of people who volunteer in, in the cavalry or in the Slack channel are in one way, shape, or form in a medical device or hospital ecosystem context. And some of the hackers that used to work for like a web service company, they changed jobs and they went to go make this medical device maker make safer to stuff. So it's, it's really an all of the above. Um, that kind of upsets some of the ruling class or the A-list hackers that think you have to be in a, a bulletin board system or be in a hacking crew or have a whole bunch of CVEs next to your name or or whatnot, um, you know, it's a, it's a different way to contribute, but I don't think it's a competition. I think these people want to do it because they, they live in the world and they want to make the world a safer place. Um, and I love it. 
I mean, I want to, I think the old way to be an elite hacksaw was to be the best or the first or the only, I think the new form of elite is, can you develop and foster a tribe of people doing stuff that you've pioneered and inspired? Can you empower them to do the bulk work while you focus on the, the harder or the emerging of the niche work? Um, and that's a hard pivot for people who came up under a different culture, right? You had to fight to defend your turf before. Now, you know, you might need to find ways to scale and get a lot of teammates that are helping you uh, carry the water on the topic you care about. That's awesome. Well, Josh, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where, where can people find you on the interweb and kind of follow some of the things you're doing? Uh, my creative handle on Twitter is Josh Corman. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's my identifier on most social media that I actually participate in. And uh, I am the cavalry, uh, not Calvary. That's where they kill Jesus, but cavalry as in horses. So I am the cavalry dot org or that's also the twitter handle i am the cavalry and uh you know i i i think i'd, I'd encourage people maybe to go either watch our launch of i am the cavalry or maybe even the five-year slater video from b-sides this year but uh, one of the things i i know is we wanted to prove the blueprint could work i think we have um so i know what we've done for the first five years i think there's a lot to be proud of so much more to do but when we have to scale big time I almost wanted to say the cavalry's canceled this year so that people would form several cavalries using the blueprint. But um, the question I want answered, and I'd love for anyone listening to this to help us answer, is what should we be for the next five years? Because I don't think we should just blindly continue what we've been doing. We've resisted taking any money. We resisted forming an actual nonprofit. Um, a lot of those things made us great and made us independent and probably should hold on to as many of them as we can. But if we need to scale significantly for more topics and more impact, um, we're really asking ourselves, what's the way to do that? And we'd love your ideas. Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to put all that in the show notes uh, so where people can you know, kind of link to that. And again, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, keep up the good work. I think you're, uh, you're definitely on the right thing. So uh, I'm glad to see where it's going. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.